All right. Good evening, dummies. It is Tuesday, June 22nd, 830. I just got off live with y'all. Thank you so much for watching. Don't unfriend me. It's going to be a good show tonight. I always say that, don't I? And sometimes it's not. There we go. I got the mood lighting in. Got it a little bit darker in here. Welcome to Don't Unfriend Me. Episode 174, I think, is where we're at. It is a beautiful Tuesday evening. It was raining in Washington, D.C., and now it's uh, just a beautiful night. It's gorgeous, and I love it. And honestly, I am really, really ticked off. I will tell you why. It's not because the Astros aren't playing great. They're number one in baseball. Go Stros, cheaters, whatever. I don't want to hear it. They are playing great ball, and everyone knows they're, they're just upset because they're haters. But tonight, I am lamenting. I am tired. I'm really tired of arguing with people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. I can ask questions all, all I want, but people just don't seem to have the answers, or they don't want to address the answer. They want to talk about other things. They want to change the subject. They want to take what I say. And here's the thing that's pissing me off. And there is a little bit of language in this show, folks, but I'm sure you can handle it. We're all adults, right? It's just words. When people go to my page and they don't watch my episode and then they comment, They watch the first this section where I tell you what I'm going to talk about. And then they go ahead and they make a whole bunch of assumption. I'm going to give you some examples of that tonight. There's nothing more frustrating as a content creator. You should not speak unless you know what the hell you're talking about. It's like literally reading the first two pages of a book and then going ahead and telling me what the ending is without reading it. You don't know what you're talking about. Here's a prime example. This girl came on. Her name's Belinda Knight. I don't know who she is. She's on YouTube. And she says, something you small-minded right-wingers are too unintelligent to have thought of is that the LGBT community is not communism. Belinda, you're right. The LGBT community is not communism, and I have never, ever insinuated or remotely put my toe in the water of that bullshit statement. Ever. Everyone here knows I am an avid supporter of the LGBTQ community. I just don't agree with everything that the LGBTQ community does, just like I don't agree with everything conservatives do. But communist socialism is not necessarily predominantly LGBTQ people's thought process. Because here's why, you... I want to call you a name right now because socialists, communists would bury freaking LGBTQ people alive and murder them and kill them. You guys love Shave Guevara, right? Holy crap. He's your hero. Well, you know what he did to uh, homosexuals? I don't understand. It's the antithesis of smart. I don't think LGBTQ people are communists. I think they have left leanings, and I think it's honestly not too intelligent to believe in socialist ideology when you're a lesbian, gay, trans, or or queer person. I'm sorry. Oh, bisexual. Can't forget bisexual. So no, I've never said that. And I resent the implication because I've never, ever said that. Then she says, They have been magnified by the right-wing media to lampoon the left, deliberately to fool the average right-winger who isn't very good at reading between the lines. 
oh, and this lie of I used to think, okay, let me let me do the first one. Reading between the lines. Do you know the first person to actually stand up for gay, lesbian, transgender rights and actually address it? Why don't you do some research and find out which president that was? Why don't you find out when the Democrats actually stood up for the LBGTQ community? Because it was in recently in the last 10 years. So to sit here and tell me that you were a part of civil rights or that you were granted any rights whatsoever as a member of the LGBTQ community when Democrats were in power, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. So why don't you look that up for me and let me know. Since your party has just been the great white hope for the LGBTQ community since inception, which is an absolute lie. They only did it when it was atypical. They only did it when your numbers became high enough to actually garner votes that were worth going after. Yeah, that's what happened. Then she says, oh, and this lie of I used to think socialism was good when I was young has become an empty right-wing meme. That's funny. I've never used that meme. If you would have listened to the show, you would have known that I said in poli sci when I went to college, I believe that socialism would be effective. And I wrote a paper on it if dictators would not actually take over the government. And what I said was, is unfortunately, every form of socialism that has ever been around has had dictators because that is what it does. It only takes care of the top one to two percent. And that's what we claim about capitalism, but which is absolutely not true. Capitalism actually impacts about 50%. It's much better than socialism. It's not perfect. It leaves people behind. But that's where you actually have to have a strong work ethic and not sit home on your ass in a mom's basement and actually do something. And capitalism will pay off. I'm living proof of it. I don't have a college degree. I dropped out of high school. And I make damn good money. And I've worked hard for my title. And yes, it took me 25 years to become a vice president. But guess what? I worked hard and it pays off. Oh, well, you're white. Oh, fuck you. I'm so sick of hearing that white privilege crap. Live my life just one day. And I promise you, man, you don't have no idea what you're talking about. How about this? I say there isn't an accurate statement representing one iota of what I said in this video. That takes a level of skill. Congrats. Then she comes back and says, the best evidence that capitalism is evil is that 99.99999% really of long-term felons are right-wing case closed. What? First of all, what are you talking about? I have no idea where this, this came out of left field. I didn't mention anything about prison systems. I certainly didn't give you a stat of how many socialists were in prison, but if you want to talk about how many people socialists put in prison, well, we can do that. Roughly 22 million over the last year, but that's not even including how many of their policies have killed, which is over a hundred million. You're going to tell me that 99.9% of the criminals in prison long-term are conservative you're an idiot. And I say that, and I'm sorry, but you're a moron. You have no idea what you're talking about. Because listen to me, sister. Why are the liberals trying to allow felons to vote if they're all fucking Republicans? What? How can you possibly even type? There has been no oxygen going to your brain for your whole life. You make no sense. 
And I just put the power to close and open cases based on incoherent thought and fallacy arguments. Another superpower that you possess. Amazing. She then says, so you think prisons are full of socialists? Ah, ha, 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 ha. Was it that funny? I didn't know that's what we were supposed to do. So my retort, allow me to retort, please. Are you arguing with yourself here? If you believe that 99.9% of long-term felons are right-wing, you are not only misinformed, but a moron. Based on your arguments and manacle laughter, you also seem triggered. I wonder why. I could care less what felons' political disposition is or isn't. I care that they broke the law and they should be in prison. Is this where I say case closed? Now add some laughter. Bah, ha, 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 ha. She then says, the important fact is, is that you don't care. Well, that's not a fact. That's supposition. That's conjecture. What do you base that on, that I don't care? What have I demonstrated that I don't care? And care about what, mind you? Socialism? Prisons? Improper percentages of stats non-reflecting of what the actual prison system is? That I don't care about twiddlywinks? That I don't think that Snorks got enough of a freaking push on Saturday morning court cartoons and I thought that it was very underrated? What? Because you're not being specific. And this is the problem with liberals. Who are you talking to? What argument are you making? And I hate to say liberals, but you are in fact a socialist because you're defending socialism. And why would you unless you are one? You're the exact person I'm talking about. My comment is then about felons. No, I really don't. That's the first accurate or somewhat sensical comment you have made. You are really achieving new heights this morning. Again, congrats. Listen, I don't mind you making comments and I don't call everyone a moron. You get that treatment because you are. You didn't watch my video. You didn't watch any of it. In fact, I defended a lot of people, including the trans community, and I said that they have the right to happiness, that they shouldn't be treated a certain way, that they shouldn't be excommunicated from sports simply because of what they prefer to their gender to be. I simply objectively gave you the reasons as why I felt it was wrong and we needed to find a way to solve it. I also gave you specific examples of why capitalism is good and socialism is bad. And it's the opposite of what you think it is. But you didn't watch that. You watched a soundbite because that is all your tiny little brain can comprehend. And that's not my fault. That's yours. 11 minutes in. Folks, what are we talking about tonight? Don't unfriend me. I'm hot. Ghetto's my ego waffle. Supposed to be Lego my ego, but ghetto's my ego waffle. We're going to be talking about the inner city, which no longer needs to be called the inner city. Can we stop? Can we stop calling it the inner city? Let's call it what it is. They're ghettos and they need help. Let's talk about why. Here's another wordplay. Stop stalling and lending me a hand. We will talk about communist behavior. We will talk about the difference between our government and theirs. This on high thought that there is this amazing system called socialism and it will save America and not utterly destroy it. 
Why can't we read a book? Why can't we understand that these policies will destroy America? Well, we're going to talk about that. And lastly, crime in liberal America. If this was Donald Trump's America with COVID and insurrection, and it was all on him, then it's most assuredly Democrats, liberal America. And the crime that is happening is their fault. And I'm going to tell you why tonight. Because remember that defund the police bullshit? The chickens have come home to roost. And we're going to go in that tonight. I'm going to show you a video of a shooting that is horrific. I did block it out. I will explain what happened. And it shook me to my core. And I have seen in person worse. And I've seen videos that are hardly worse. And it still rocked me. It hit home today. And now it needs to stop. Did you hear Pantene recalled all of their women's shampoo? Biden says since he's president, he will personally sniff out the situation. Recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest. Always direct. So sit back. Relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. All right, dummies, episode 174. Let's get into it. It's almost like it's already an episode. Yes, I'm rocking the Don't Tread shirt tonight. Also, the fish hooks. I'm ready to rock and roll. I hope you are as well. Listen, this is Don't Unfriend Me. Who am I? My name is Matthew Spear. I am your host. You got a little taste. I can get hot once in a while. A little emotional. And listen, it's not personal. It's just I'm tired of buttoning up. I'm going to be who I am. I occasionally drop a bomb once in a while. I will say shit. I will say fuck. I might even say jackass. That's about it. I try not to get too vulgar. But I'm honest, and I'm done being nice to people who are idiots. I'm just going to call it out. I don't like to degrade, but you know what? You drew first blood. This is a Rambo situation. You drew first blood, not me. 174, where can you find me? Well, obviously, you're watching me now, so you've done a pretty good job so far. But you can also go to Facebook. You can go to Anchor. You can go to Instagram. You can go to YouTube. Come say hi. I'm on all the podcasts. You can find me on Spotify. You can find me on Google. You can find me on Apple, whatever. Listen to the show, or you can stream it from YouTube or Facebook. Facebook is where I live and breathe. We have 20,000, some odd, almost 21,000 followers. Facebook's actually, our YouTube's actually growing slowly. I think we're at 158 right now, which is good. It's just slowly tricking, trickling along. So if you have a YouTube account, maybe go throw me a bone and throw me a like and a share and a follow and all that subscribe stuff. If that's not your cup of mojo, you can go to don'tunfriendme.com. Visit me there, and I have my entire catalog. I have my blog and all that other stuff. You can visit, say hi, and all of that junk. Let's do it, folks. Let's go over it tonight. Oh, dummies. Why are you a dummy? Well, here's the thing. The don't unfriend me's. It's an acronym, and I put dummies on it. Barstool Sports have stoolies. We have dummies. Dummies isn't an insult. It is the highest honor of all the land. If you are called a dum-dum, that is completely different. That is a major insult. The lady I was talking about, Miss Knight, she is most assuredly a dum-dum. You are dummies. Wear it with pride. Remember, in the end, you can love me. You can hate me. We can agree. We can disagree. All I ask is that you don't unfriend me. And if you're a jackass on my site and insult people and be generally rude or post nude pictures of Melania Trump, I'm going to ban you like the jackass who did that earlier today. Stop stalling and lending me a hand. When people describe particularly evil individuals or regimes, 
Why is it that they use the term Nazi or fascist, but almost never communist? I hear it all the time. Someone called me a fascist the other day. I'm not going to mention who, but you all know if you watch my show. But how come they're okay with socialism and communism? Given the unparalleled amount of human suffering communists have caused, why is communist so much less a term of revulsion than Nazi? And don't get me wrong, Nazis are the most horrendous scum of the earth. 11 million people, 5 million Jews, and over 6 million supporters were murdered and killed. That is a big number. But 100 million have died over the last 100 years, and there's no equivalency here. Both are pieces of shit. But why is Nazi not have the same connotation as communists. Communists killed 70 million people in China, more than 20 million people in the Soviet Union, not including about 5 million Ukrainians, and almost one out of every three Cambodians. And communists enslaved entire nations in Russia, Vietnam, China, Eastern Europe, North Korea, Cuba, and much of Central Asia. They ruined the lives of well over a billion people. So why does communists have the same terrible reputation as Nazis, or does it? And in fact, it doesn't. Reason number one, there is simply put widespread ignorance of the communist record. Whereas both right and left loathe Nazism and teach its evil history, the left, and I'm talking about the left, not traditional liberals like Harry Truman or John F. Kennedy, who actually was more of a Republican, has never loathed communism. And since the left dominates academia, almost no one teaches communism's evil history. Reason number two, the Nazis carried out the Holocaust. Nothing matches the Holocaust for pure evil. The rounding up of virtually every Jewish man, woman, and child and baby on the European continent and sending them to die is unprecedented and unparalleled. The communists killed far more people than Nazis, but never matched the Holocaust in the systemization of genocide. The uniqueness of the Holocaust and the enormous attention rightly paid to have helped ensure that Nazism has a worse name than communism. Reason number three, communism is based on since nice sounding theories. Nazism is, isn't. Nazism is not. It's based on hyenas sounding theories. Intellectuals in general, including of course, the intellectuals who write history are seduced by words so much so that they deem actions as less significant than words. For that reason, they haven't focused nearly as much attention on the horrific actions of communists as they have on the horrific actions of the Nazis. They dismiss the evils of communists as perversions of true communism. There's no such thing as true communism. The communism that you see is actually the truest form of communism. It's shit. But they regard Nazi atrocities correctly as the logical and inevitable results of Nazism. Reason number four, Germans have thoroughly exposed the evils of Nazism, have taken responsibility for them, and have attempted to atone for them. Russians have not done anything similar regarding Lenin's or Stalin's horrors. To the contrary, Lenin, the father of Soviet communism, is still widely venerated in Russia. And as regards to Stalin, as the University of London Russia historian Donald Rayfield puts it, people still deny by assertion or implication Stalin's Holocaust. Even less so has China exposed the greatest mass murder and enslaver of them all, Mao Zedong. Mao remains revered in China. Every Chinese currency note has a picture of him on it. Until Russia and China and Vietnam and Cuba and North Korea acknowledge the evils their countries committed under communism, communism's evils will remain less known than the evils of the German state under Hitler. 
Reason number five, communists murdered mostly their own people. The Nazis, on the other hand, killed very few fellow Germans. World opinion, that largely meaningless and amoral term, deemed the murder of members of one's own group far less noteworthy than the murder of outsiders. That's why, for example, blacks killing millions of fellow blacks in Africa elicits almost no attention from world opinion. Or the murders that happen in the inner cities every single weekend and night are less important than a white cop shooting a black man, whether he is armed or they are justified or not. Reason number six, in the view of the left, the last good war was World War II, the war against German Nazism and Japanese fascism. The left does not regard wars against communist regimes as good wars. For example, the American war against Vietnam and the communism is regarded as immoral. And the war against Korean communism and its Chinese communist backers is simply ignored. Until the left and all the institutions influenced by the left acknowledge how evil communism has been, we will continue to live in a morally confused world. In the meantime, all good people owe it to the victims of communism to learn what happened to them. Even worse than being murdered or enslaved is a world that doesn't even know that they were. More importantly, we need to educate our young ones and teach them that socialism is the antithesis of freedom, that it is not laced in anything that's morally or financially or spiritually rewarding to anyone in America who holds our truths to be self-evident. Every socialist country has a constitution, and none of them follow it. People are silenced. I have said it before, equal portions of everything or equal portions of nothing. This is socialism in a nutshell. And eventually, even if you have equal portions of everything, you will get equal portions of nothing in the end because that is how it works. It is a pyramid scheme of epic proportions. And ultimately, the top percentage get whatever they want and you get nothing. Crime in liberal America. Many major U.S. cities run by liberal Democrats are in rough shape. They are afflicted by the problems of homelessness, violent crime, gains, and unemployment to a far greater degree than the country as a whole. Consider the following. Chicago's violence and gain-related drug problems are well known. What's less well known is that the city hasn't had a Republican mayor since 1927. The city's finances, like most democratically run major cities, are in shambles. At the end of 2015, according to a 2017 report by the Fiscal Times, Chicago had assets of just $4.7 billion against liabilities of more than $14 billion, a funded ratio of barely 33%. The homeless population in L.A. has risen from a staggering 33,000 in 2010 to over 55,000 in 2018 to over 75,000 in 2021. The city, already dominated by a liberal supermajority of legislatures, has just recently pushed through massive local tax increases designed to address the homeless crisis. San Francisco actually has maps so people can track where the worst indices of human waste are on the sidewalks. The homeless population now approaches 7,000 and there is no law prohibiting sleeping on the streets, sidewalks, or other public places. Discarded syringes are everywhere. San Francisco's property crime rate is the highest in the nation, and smash-and-grab thefts invoking, involving broken car windows are so commonplace that repair shops have waiting lists, sometimes up to three weeks. 
The DA's office no longer prosecutes victimless crimes like prostitution or drug possession, resulting in a massive influx of drug dealers into the city. Frighteningly similar situations exist as nearly every other major democratically run city all around the nation in New York City, Detroit, St. Louis, Baltimore, Hartford, Connecticut, Newark, Philadelphia, Portland, Oregon, and on and on and on and on and on. The story follows the same pattern. Have you been to Austin, Texas lately? You wouldn't even recognize it. It is liberal and homeless. How about anywhere near Bakersfield, California, a highly conservative city? Go up north. Go up to Chico. Go see what that looks like. Everything has changed. Any city that was once somewhat thriving and doing well, that has Democratic liberal leadership, is now a complete shithole. Tell me one that isn't. Homelessness, high crime, underwater finances, soft policing, lax immigration control, often sanctuary cities, high taxes, and business-averse regulations. It's a guaranteed formula for failure. As investors, Business Daily put it, when Democrats are in control, cities tend to go soft on crime, reward cronyism with public funds, establish hostile business environments, heavily tax the most productive citizens, and set up fat pensions for their union friends. Simply put, Theirs is a blue state blueprint for disaster. The question, of course, is why? Why do they choose to govern like that? I mean, anybody sensible could say, well, why would they want their constituents to murder each other? Why would they want drugs and feces and homelessness in their cities? I'll tell you. Can anything about the efficacy and proprietary of liberal governing doctrine be extrapolated from these examples? The answer is a resounding yes. To boil down the essential difference between conservative and liberal governing, philosophy into simple terms, it would be this. Conservatives believe in equal opportunity. Liberals believe in equal outcome. The conservatives' view of government's role in society after fulfilling its fundamental responsibilities of national defense, common sense safety, liability regulations, environmental protections, and providing a basic social safety net for those in a temporarily disadvantageous situation is set up the game pieces such that choosing to participate have a reasonably equal chance of winning. Reasonably. Not perfectly equal, perhaps, but a reasonable shot at success. In the conservative paradigm, individual initiative, hard work, and a bit of luck can eliminate almost all the barriers to educational, professional, and financial achievement. In contrast, liberal doctrine stipulates an equal outcome for everyone. Their view of government is that it's its responsibility is to ensure that every individual has at least a minimally acceptable share of society's spoils. That share being quite arbitrarily determined by liberal politicians according to their whims and the political exigencies in effect at the time. Liberal governing practices of wealth redistribution, punitive taxation, excessive regulations designed to impede runway, capitalistic profits, and cover every contingency, individual benefit programs all combine to produce, and in many instances, the unintended consequences of short-circuiting personal initiative and ambition. Instead, these excessive giveaway programs essentially teach some people how to game the system and get the government to pay for their existence in society. That's not the original intent, but that's how it ends up playing out in many cases. Liberal cities are governed by the guiding tenets of softness, misplaced compassion, and individual unaccountability, 
Examples include hands-off policing style. New York City has long since abandoned the highest successful stop and frisk practices of the Giuliani years that lead to low street crime. And you all know I'm not a fan of Rudy Giuliani. However, he did an amazing job and was considered America's mayor, even by the liberals. Sanctuary cities, which give rise to higher incidents of crime, poverty, unemployment, and the wasting of taxpayer-funded public resources because of the undocumented population's draining effect on the community. The inexplicable decision of cities like Boston to no longer prosecute crimes such as shoplifting and breaking and entering, leading to urban stores not being able to remain open and be profitable past the dusk hours, (coughs) thus denying the community of a valuable resource. Widespread locally approved abuse of the SNAP and EBT program, allowing its acceptance for alcohol and other non-essential items, explicit sanctioning of sleeping on the street or other common public areas, and unrestricted public loitering. Liberal policies have worked almost perfectly to the degrade of the quality of inner city life for their residents to the point of abject unacceptability. Instead of raising the standard of living for all the city's inhabitants, excessive giveaways, too often offered without requiring adequate, verifiable proof of need, and lax or missing enforcement of local laws and edicts have the opposite effect. Such governmental practice only teaches people they are forever unaccountable as regards the purported norms of society and that they will be given their daily sustenance for free without putting forth any commensurate effort on their part. In short, overindulgence by local city governments denies the notion of ownership over their own lives to the lower strata of society. That notion of self-ownership over the control and ultimate destiny of one's life is absolutely critical to a well-functioning society. Without that sense of personal responsibility, there is no civilized order. There is an old cliche that speaks perfectly to the societal dangers inherent when the individual does not feel the responsibility of ownership. No one ever washes a rented car. Liberal cities are strewn with abandoned, rusted hulks of rented cars. Their rotten carcasses ablight on the landscape, indisputable testimony to failed democratic policy. I want one person to make a comment in the section and tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me how in the last 75 years any democratically run city, major city, has benefited the African-American or Hispanic community. I'll wait. This is a testament to that more than anything else. Yasmin Perez and Giovanni Arzuaga fell in love at first sight and were inseparable. They died together during a brazen weekend attack. The parents of two young children, Perez and Arzuega, were gunned down Saturday night amid Puerto Rican Day festivities in Humboldt Park. Arzuega was 24. He died that night as he laid over the bullet-ridden body of his wife. And Perez, 25, this Tuesday morning. Shortly after learning of her death, the couple's friend, Jay Pacheco, reflected on their love story. I thought it was so cute. Pacheco told the Sun-Times, they first met each other at a party, and it was over with, him, with, with them from there. They fell in love with each other, and they spent years together. They made a family together. It was love at first sight, she added. The deadly attack has drawn national attention and has emerged as another flashpoint during a particularly violent year in Chicago. Mayor Lori Lightfoot on Monday vowed to track down those involved in the horrific shooting, 
captured on surveillance video that was circulated widely online in the media. And I will play it for you right now. I am warning you, discretion is advised. I have blocked it out, but it is still horrific. You will see a mob <coughs> attack a vehicle with a Puerto Rican flag. You will see his wife pulled out over her husband first and shot and killed. Well, shot and not killed. And then her husband received several shots at close point blank range as the crowd disperses. It is horrific. It is horrible. I want you to close your eyes for one second. And please do it. I want you to imagine that it's a beautiful early evening. You're in your vehicle. You had just been at a parade. You're heading home for the day. Your skin is warm from the sun kiss. You're hungry. You're tired. And you want to go see your children because they are too young to come with you and accompany you. And as you drive out and you get into a minor fender bender, a crowd forms. The flag is spit on. Your car is punched and kicked. Your doors are ripped open as you try to converse and at least remain somewhat cordial to the threat that's ahead of you. We're not armed, you have nothing, and you lament that you wish you had your firearm that was sitting by your bedside table, but because this area was a gun-free zone, you were unable to carry it with you because you're a good citizen. Your wife then leans forward, and as the door is ripped open, she is grabbed by her hair, her dress and her clothes fleeing up, exposing her once modesty, slammed to the concrete. And as you begin to come out of the car as well, by force, she is shot in the throat. At that point, you are shot up to six times and dying on the way to the hospital. The last thought you have as you look up as an African-American is that you see two policemen did the shooting. What would the story be? What would the narrative be? You can open your eyes now. I promise you this. Every city in America would be burning. It would be on fire. And there would be riots of epic proportions. Police, business, people would be killed. It would be one of the largest affronts of murder and absolute execution style. And nobody would be safe that night. They weren't black. They were Puerto Rican. And it wasn't police officer. It was a gang and thug element that has gone unchecked in Chicago for far too long and all other inner cities. It is time to take these cities back. There are people who live in these cities who are terrified to stand up. They're terrified to bear witness. And they are being executed by a bunch of moralist thugs in ghettos. This video is a testament to that. Once again, please, viewer discretion advised. It's absolutely horrific. It's one of my biggest fears. I talked about it live is that besides seeing my kids physically violated by an adult and now that they're older, thank God, you know, 11 and eight, they're still in danger. They've been taught and we've expressed it to them. We've shown them the movie sleepers. We're showing them a time to kill. We're helping them understand is that the world's an evil place and they have to protect themselves. And we're teaching them that. And I feel better every day every day we get past it and the neighborhood we live in i know i can trust the people 
my second biggest fear is that my my family goes through a situation like that and I can't get to my weapon quick enough or I'm not frosty enough or I'm not fast enough or I'm not effective enough to stop the threat. And the last thing I see is my family in the same position that I'm about to be in. It terrifies me. It leaves me absolutely cold and chill with sweat on most nights. And I have several nightmares from my past. That one has not come true, but it is the one that scares me the most. Those people didn't deserve to die. Nobody deserves to die like that. Chicago Homicide Database and MAP investigators search for clues in what happened that night. And they actually have this on tape. And when they found this killing and they found these people, you could tell that the police were extremely, extremely shooken up by this. And most people are. And even Lori Lightfoot, who most assuredly is responsible for this as mayor, because it's her job to clean up the city, was shaken. Police have said the couple were driving in the 3200 block of West Division when they were involved in just a minor crash, and they were ambushed. Several people beat Perez and then shot her. Chief of Detectives Brendan Denehan said Monday when Arzuega came to her aid, he was shot by a second person, almost execution style. And the video shows the couple lying in the street next to their car as the attackers ran off in a pool of blood. Pacheco said she wants her friend to be remembered as more than just a victim. She described Perez as a fun-loving friend who loved to dance and play video games. But most importantly, Pacheco said Perez was a dedicated partner to Arzuega and mother to their two children, Sophia and Jaden. She was amazing. It may look hard for a lot of people, but Yasmin was such a great mom, she said, holding back tears at the time. She loved her kids so much. You could tell they were so loved and they were so happy. On Friday, Jaden will celebrate his first birthday, Pacheco said. Amy Claire, an attorney representing Perez's family, asked for privacy for the relatives. Lightfoot on Monday told reporters police have promising leads and have identified the suspected shooter. There's one person who dealt the fatal shot, but there were others who were standing by who dragged that poor woman out of the car, the mayor said. The man who was killed literally used his body as a shield and paid for that with his life. The mayor also had a warning for those with the gunman. You need to turn yourself in because we are going to spare no resource whatsoever to find them and you and bring to you ju- and bring you justice and make sure that these people who created such brazen chaos and harm are held in custody until they see their day in court, she said. As of Tuesday afternoon, police had made no arrests. A memorial for Arzuega was set up Sunday near the shooting scene and a GoFundMe page was created to cover his funeral costs and Perez's medical bills. It has raised nearly $34,000. It could be $3 million, and all those children will want is their parents back. I have to give Lori Lightfoot credit. At least she's saying the right things. I hope she sticks to it. These men should be put to death, and anyone who watched it should be put to death. Travesty. It is horrific, and it's just another number in Chicago. Another 32 people were murdered over the weekend in Chicago. It happens every night in every inner city, and nobody is doing anything about it. Why can't we be honest? Why can't we say that there are some very horrible white elements in the world today, whether it be neo-Nazis or the Ku Klux Klan or people who peddle methed children? 
or a bunch of rednecks who have the rebel flag and want to hurt people simply because of their color of their skin. Why can't we also say that there are thugs and gangs and African Americans who are ashamed to the black African American communities in the cities that have nothing to do with the standard, normal human beings who are African American, and it does not reflect on them? Why can't we be absolutely honest and distinct these two groups, people who are good and people who are bad? We all have them in every group. It doesn't matter whether you're Asian or you're Muslim or you're black or you're white. When are we going to hold them accountable and when are the people of these cities going to rise up and arm themselves and take these fuckers out? Because I promise you this, if the Ku Klux Klan lights their fires near my home, I'm going to say something and I'm going to do something. I'm not going to allow it to live in this town. I'm not going to allow those people to get air why won't people stand up? And if the leaders of these freaking cities won't do anything, it's time for the business owners and the neighbors and the people who have influence in those communities to take it into their own hands because that is their God-given right to be free and to live safe and raise their family and not to be dragged out and murdered like they were helpless cattle. When will someone atone for the inner cities. After a year of violence and unrest, largely American cities serve as a cautionary tale for their progressiveness in Washington, who want to move the country further to the left. The Democrats' airtight lock on the urban vote has allowed political leaders to pursue ideological agendas without fear of reprisal, which has revealed just how much the elite left, compromised mostly of affluent liberal whites who dominate media narrative, is out of step with the concerns of the rank-and-file urban residents. Let's take crime for an example. Defund the police was always an unworkable project, but never stopped progressives from working on it. Representative Rashida Tlaib, infamous, no more policing, it can't be reformed, unquote, may have been more extreme than the democratic norm, but its basic sentiment dominates the elite left's obsession with policing injustices and relative indifference to street violence. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Inability to acknowledge America has a crime problem is but one example of the conventional left's unwillingness to depart from the standard script. Meanwhile, the five cities that reduced their police budgets the most in 2020, Austin, New York, Minneapolis, Seattle, and Denver, saw murders spike over the past year well above the national average. 36 of the 50 largest cities in America saw murders rise at double-digit rates compared to 2020. Shootings and homicides in Chicago, New York, and Los Angeles were way up. Crime in large progressive urban strongholds far outpace more moderate and right-leaning cities. Minority and urban residents know exactly what is going on which is why we have seen mayoral candidates in New York City recently pivot to crime as a top issue. In a May 2021 poll, more than 60% of New Yorkers supported increasing the city's police budget and a plurality named crime as their number one issue in this year's mayoral race. In July 2020, as protesters and rioters filled city streets across the country, 81% of black Americans said in a Gallup poll they would like police to spend the same amount of time or more in their neighborhoods. 
In Minneapolis, the epicenter of the defund the police movement, black residents were more opposed than white residents to reducing the size of the city's police force and more likely to perceive that crime had increased. When are we going to stop speaking for African Americans, Hispanics, and minorities? We don't know shit about living there. We don't put our homes near there. We don't run our businesses in there. We don't go ahead and conduct business there. The only reason we go to the inner city is because there might be a fucking ball game or we want to buy a dime bag of oregano. That's it. When are we going to stop telling them what's best for them? They know their city. They live in it. They breathe in it. They can smell it. And when are white people going to stop virtue signaling and empower them to make their decisions what's best for their communities and stop telling them what's best for their communities? City dwellers and racial minorities have consistently been at odds with the elite left's view of urban policing. Schooling is another example of the elite left's disconnect with urban residents. Bill de Blasio his declaration during his failed 2020 presidential campaign that he hated the privatizers and wanted to get away from charter schools was merely a blunt articulation of the leftward drift of the democratic elite over the past 20 years. The party's platforms have become increasingly hostile to charter schools since the 2000 presidential election, as Jonathan Chait has documented. Despite this trend, Democratic voters in cities like their charter schools, and they want more of them. As a recent poll in New York City found that 70% of Democrats favor opening more charter schools, a figure that grows higher among black primary voters and Hispanics. A majority of Democratic voters said they would prefer a mayoral candidate who supports charter schools as well as traditional public schools. A 2019 poll found that nearly two-thirds of white Democratic voters had an unfavorable opinion of charter schools, while majorities of black and Hispanic voters support them. It's not surprising. Haven't we seen this with all policies? It's white people making policies for African-American and minorities, and they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Charter schools are mostly non-white and urban. While only 25% of the nation's traditional public schools are in cities, 57% of charter schools are located in urban areas. The pandemic's unplanned experiment in forced homeschooling has further eroded the public's confidence in the left's ironclad embrace of traditional public schools. A recent poll in California revealed that the share of parents who say they would send their children to a private school if they could has increased by a third in the past two years. The disconnect between the elite left and people on the street extends beyond crime in schools to basic American aspirations. And let me ask this question. If the average child costs anywhere from twelve dollars to $18,000 to put through one year of education at any level, explain to me this. Why wouldn't parents be okay with taking that money and putting their kids in a private school for that dollar amount? You can get a fantastic education for that. Isn't that an option that should be for every single American if they want it? Which Democrat is against that? Which Democrat's going to stand up and have the balls in this thread and tell me that education isn't one of your priorities and a platform because you're supposed to be the smartest fuckers on the planet, but you don't support people going to private school and getting them out of the ghettos and the cesspools of these gang-ridden schools? where drugs and stabbings happen on a common daily occurrence? No. Doesn't make sense, does it? 
That's because you don't want an educated mass. You want people who continue to vote for you and you tell them that the white man is their problem and they're holding them back when really it's white liberalism that's holding them back. A greater share of black and Hispanic Americans than whites believe they are on the way to achieving the American dream. And considerably more black and Hispanic working class people than affluent white liberals believe anyone can start a successful business. Half of affluent white liberals believe very strongly that public buildings and monuments named after Confederate leaders should be renamed compared to much smaller shares of black and Hispanic working class voters and a much greater percentage of affluent white liberals than black and Hispanic working class voters would be very upset if their son or daughter married a Trump supporter. With their power over the daily media narrative, sadly, the elite left has been able to ignore the opinions of non-elite urban constituents with political, with little political impunity. But that does not make their hypocrisy any less damning. As the GOP considers its post-election rebranding after losing, much debate has centered around a core ideological question. What does the Republican Party stand for? There's also a key political question. How can the GOP increase its mainstream appeal without isolating its base? Finding the answers to these incredibly complex questions will require much dialogue, introspection, and patience. But Republicans are not free of this. They are not pure as the white-driven snow. They've had their own policies, absolutely, that have kept black people down. And it's time that we atone for our own sins. There is one restorative action that Republicans can and should take immediately. Republicans must once again turn their attention to American cities. As evidenced by several recent elections, a considerable majority of urban voters now reflexively tilt toward the Democratic Party because of a lack of choice. They may not embrace liberals' ideology with zeal, but contrasted with the perceived Republican obsession with bedroom politics, these metropolitan voters see 21st century modernity as inherently preferable to theological authoritarianism. And that's exactly what it is. It's basically time for us to stop worrying about gays, lesbians, transgenders, support them as much as we support anybody, and go after the vote that is killing us because we can't get past our theological beliefs. For God's sakes, even the fucking Catholics accept the gays and lesbians. As Christians, can we just stop? And because this urbanites don't see sufficient Republican engagement on challenges specific to the city environment, Democrats have little urban electoral competition. It's imperative that conservatives work to alter this dynamic. This is hardly unattainable. With a serious strategy, Republicans can win back urban support. For their many years of urban political dominance, Democrats have a less-than-stellar record of achievement. From D.C. to Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, to many city-dwelling citizens face unyielding epidemics of crime, intractable cycles of poverty, and local governments predicted upon feeding networks of patronage instead of voter interests. To address these failings, Republicans should focus on a four-part agenda returning to our cities. And this is it. This is the only thing they have to do besides back it up after the election. And they will dominate politics. Secure communities, whether at a national or local level, a government's most basic responsibility is the security of those it serves. Sadly, in America today, many urban citizens have been abandoned to the mercy, mercy of terrible criminality. Fortunately, there are solutions. First, 
Republicans should work to ensure more effective oversight of local police forces. In addition, while police officers deserve both the moral support needed to make tough decisions and the funding support for effective law enforcement, public service must take precedence to all of the concerns. Second, through state and federal statutes, if necessary, Republicans should strengthen laws to ensure that gang leaders are punished for their crimes and taken off the streets or off this fucking planet if necessary. Third, working with community businesses and religious leaders, Republicans must form new urban coalitions to repair the social conditions in which crime thrives. These coalitions could also provide crucial support for prisoner rehabilitation projects. On this issue, tough on crime must mean a more comprehensive approach to empower communities and improve public safety. It's not mutually exclusive. You can be tough on crime, but also have compassion for people and try. Economic empowerment through important low taxes cannot constituate the entirety of the GOP's urban economic policy. Giving low taxes to people to hardly pay taxes is not a benefit. To help energize economic growth in struggling cities, Republicans must ensure that the ingredients for this growth are available. Communities must be freed of the locked grip of unions, which restrains employment, destroys government budgets, and drives up living costs. New efforts will be needed to attract businesses to establish in urban areas and stay in them and not leave and receive tax breaks if they don't and tax penalties if they do. But urban economic empowerment will also require training schemes to equip the economically excluded with the tools they need to find gainful work, successfully engaging all of the city's stakeholders to support this multifaceted approach will be critical. We need to stop the railroad track mentality, the other side of the tracks, the grass is greener on the other side. Whites need to move into these impoverished neighborhoods, and we need to encourage the impoverished neighborhoods to move into ours. We will regulate each other. And with an increased police force, the grab ass that is happening now of crime going over the tracks will be squelched. But only if we begin now. The longer we wait, the more of a stranglehold the criminal has on the inner cities and the more reluctant we are to allow them to encroach across those tracks. Step three, social mobility. Children deserve a good education and adults have the right to bold aspirations. By adopting this dual approach toward fostering greater social mobility, Republicans can help individuals strengthen themselves in their communities. Republicans can offer voters a bold contrast to the Democratic Party's subservience to teachers' unions. Instead, Republicans should offer voters a standard and choice system. This is a framework that will reward good teachers with better compensation while excluding poor teachers from the classroom. What we need is an approach that will reward effectively managed schools and empower parents to give their children the very best possible education. Lastly, a responsive government. The wire is supposed to be fiction, but political mismanagement and corruption runs deep in American cities. If Republicans can provide voters with local candidates of strong character, we can restore urban trust in our public service. In short, and I can't believe I'm saying this, we need local Republican leaders in the dedicated style of Democratic Cory Booker. I don't like Cory Booker, 
but he is a passionate human being and he understands the Constitution and he fights vigorously for his constituents. We need a Republican Cory Booker and we don't have one. It's evident that many urban Americans don't like the GOP, but by returning to our cities, we can begin to restore the Republican brand in the eyes of currently disinterested and disenfranchised voters. If we work hard, we can hope to attract a major block of supporters into the GOP's national election fold. And if it's only 2 or 3%, that is a massive number per year. It's something we can do. It's a small lift instead of boiling the ocean. And even if our return attracts little support in the short term, if given serious effort, it will help challenge damaging notions of the GOP as a party for the few and become the party of the many. In essence, a return to our cities just doesn't make us serious political sense, but it blends compassionate conservatism with sensible conservatism. It makes moral and intellectual sense as well. We don't have a platform. We don't have a voices. We excommunicate the church and the inner, churches in the inner cities, and that is the one common thing that we have. God, we need to reach out to the inner cities. We need to help these churches. We need to bring the word of God into the inner cities. And once again, I am not a religious person, but it creates something beautiful. It creates community. It creates self-reflection. It creates a little fear of the repercussions of not following God's law. And that is what we need more than anything else right now in America. We have went too far of devoid of religion where we used to spend way too much time focused on it. There is a common ground and a healthy balance of belief and reality. And we have changed the reality to this fiction that liberals are the answer that liberal policy and socialism and moving farther to the left will get us right. And that is the farthest thing from the truth. There can be too many conservatives and there can be too many liberals. And right now, America, like 2014, has way too many of one and not enough of the other. We need to expand our base and expand our party. And the only people who have the knowledge, the understanding, and the ability to empower people to stand on their own two feet without the government tit is Republican conservative values. And we are the only party that empowers people to do it by themselves with the support behind the scenes. That is not what liberals believe. And there is no liberal on the planet who understands how to do it like a Republican. Folks, that's it for my show tonight. I hope you liked it, whether you love me or hate me or agree or disagree. All I ask is that you don't unfriend me. Please drop by, give me a like, share, follow, subscribe. Share this with friends. I'm on live before my shows Monday through Friday, and I hope you enjoyed tonight's show. The thing I go out on always is the Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. 22 veterans a day commit suicide. Traumatic brain injury, PTS, depression, anxiety are all real things. It is not a disorder. It is a sickness, and it is curable with help and conversation and support. Reach out to the VCL hotline. If you are a loved one who can't get your veteran to talk, please reach out to me and I will help. I will make that phone call with you. I've done it a hundred times. I'll be happy to do it again. If that doesn't work, you can provide them a link to my site at donutfriendme.com. Up in the top right-hand corner, they can click on the VCL link and they will be connected via Skype to an operator. 
Folks, that's it for me tonight. By the way, if you are a civilian, VCL is not just for veterans. It is for any American who needs help. Reach out to them and they will get you the right person. Once again, that's it for 174. Tomorrow I will see you for 175. Have a good night. Thank you for listening. Be kind to each other. And remember, don't unfriend me.